The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudharman. Joining me on the line from London, Weber Shandwick, Chairman for EMEA and Asia Pacific, Tim Sutton. Tim, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Arun. Lovely to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well. And I think it's going to be a different one today because for reasons best known to yourself, Tim, you have taken it upon yourself to interview me. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, for Arun, first of all, for giving me that, uh, that, that favour. It's something I've been wanting to do um, simply because um, sitting in, in the Homes Report, you, you follow you know, every issue, you know everyone. Um, and I just thought I'd be interested to kind of um, get your idea of what might be going on. I don't know if you know, um, in the Middle Ages, back in Merry England, they had something called the Lord of Misrule. Have you heard of the Lord of, Order of the Lord, if I can say it right, the Lord of no. Misrule? Let me explain. The Lord of Misrule was at Christmas, which is what we're close to. The uh, in wealthy households, the normal um, hierarchical structure of lords down to peasants was reversed for a day mm. and a peasant was put in charge of all the revelries um, and the lord had to kind of within reason do what the peasant said and, and so on and so i'm the peasant today arun and you're the lord um, it is it is the lord of misrule in scotland it was known as the abbot of unreason so i'm hoping that we'll be reasonable okay. um, fairly but but it's the misrule celebrations and that's why we're reversing today so this is an ancient um english tradition all right i'm not sure the analogy um, totally so, works but okay I'll, I'll, I'll well there you go it's, <laughs> it's yeah you'll bear with it um well so my first question arun is uh, uh, and and just as you say to, to me and your other guests, sometimes I don't want you to say anything confidential that you don't want to say, but you know, we've talked a lot, you and I have talked a lot, I've heard you talk to other people a lot about how the business model might be changing mm. um, in PR agencies mm. uh, for all sorts of reasons we, we, we might get into later. Um, and by the way, I think it is. But my, my question to you is, for your um, your listeners uh, and those who avidly follow the Homes Report, which I include myself amongst, can you describe your own business model in general terms? And I'm kind of interested to know if that's been changing a lot in the last two to three years or whether you foresee any changes. Mm, sure, yeah. I mean, our business model is, um, is, I think, not dissimilar to many media companies. We... Um, produce first and foremost we produce a lot of content and then we look for different ways to to use an awful word monetize that content and that uh, comes um, in the form of for example um, award shows so the Sabre Awards uh, which is you know a reasonably big driver of our revenue around the world um, we have our various events our conferences um, which also um, are a big commercial driver for us. And then um, the other areas where we bring in revenue are um, sponsored content. So content submitted by advertising partners. Uh, and we also have a premium content section, which is um, available to subscribers. Um, 
and I don't think any of that is particularly revolutionary from a from a kind of media business model perspective. I don't think it's going to change dramatically in the future. I've always thought for us, it's not so much about how we make our money, but it's more about where we make our money. So the balance might shift. Um, you know, the sponsored content, for example, has, has grown a lot for us. Um, and of course, the geographic spread might shift as, as we've um, expanded our global footprint. Um, but I don't see any, any really dramatic changes. It's not, um, it may, maybe it, a little bit boring, but um, there aren't, I mean, honestly, there aren't that many ways to make money out of the media these days. I mean, we, we um, potentially could look at ways to monetize our data better because we do have a wealth of data on people, but it's a little bit tricky these days with GDPR and so forth. GDPR. Yeah, so it's not, it's not a huge driver. I mean, we do a certain amount of consulting as well um, for agencies and for corporations, but it's so, that's so um, resource intensive, or, you know, so you know, it's really time heavy and it's kind of built around our expertise that it's a, it's a hard thing to grow, as you know, running a PR firm. Um, so I don't actually see any, any huge changes in, in, in that model. And um, for us, the, the, the drivers, I think, have always been um, just building deeper relationships in, in the markets in which we operate and then expanding those markets. Um, the, the other thing we, we have all often talked about doing but have had less success doing is, is perhaps expanding into adjacent industries. So, but, you know, looking at, for example, digital and advertising. I mean, we've seen some growth there in terms of our awards show and our conferences. Um, but again, that's something that does require, I think, pretty significant investment if you want to do it properly. I'm kind of um, interested in the what seems to me to be an inbuilt tension in, in that model. And I don't think this is unique to you, but it would apply to many other media organizations. And, and perhaps I, uh, you might disagree, but let me describe the tension as this. Um, that on the one hand, you are um, an independent um, source of editorial news and comment. Mm. Uh, and I think most people, I, I certainly think you do that exceptionally well, and, um, and very fairly, if I may say so, as well, on, certainly on, based on, on my experience of all my dealings with you and your colleagues. Um, so you are you know, you are kind of independent and you have comments and thoughts, commentary, and but you report fairly. And I know that for you personally, as a journalist, kind of editorial honesty and integrity are, are important uh, to you. And yet, uh, at the same time, as you've just said, you do have an awful lot of what you might call sponsored content. Mm -hmm. You do, through the... Um, the, through the sabers, which of course people pay to enter, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I assume is a large part of your model turn up for great dinners in nice places around the world and so on. So, and and you even, as you just said, do consulting for some agencies. How do you kind of manage to reconcile those two different things? Mm. It's um, the perennial challenge for media. I think it's, it's become more acute over the last decade, I'd suggest, as um, media organizations have shrunk and you've seen the rise of perhaps smaller media companies where you do have people like me, I'm, I'm editor-in-chief and CEO, so I oversee both editorial and commercial. 
Now, typically in, in the media world, that role, um, you know, you've had a publisher and an editor uh, in most media companies. The publisher has come from the commercial side, but in most, most companies, the, the editor would report to the publisher, so the commercial person would reign supreme. I'm not sure that's necessarily a better state of affairs. I mean, in terms of managing that, for us, it's not been that hard because I think we're all journalists um, at the top of the company. And so for us, the, the editorial integrity of the Holmes Report has always come first. I think we're all keenly aware that once you lose that, it's pretty much gone forever. And whatever you do commercially at that point is going to be a lot less successful. Um, and so I think we're all very aware that any commercial success this company has um, is, is completely dependent on the integrity of its editorial. So it's kind of comes back to that church and state argument, um, knowing where that line is and, and, and enforcing it really. I mean, I struggle really to think or, or, or to, 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 to find any examples of where, of where people could find, you know, us going easy on, on someone because they're a sponsor. I mean, I think sometimes the converse may, may in fact be yeah. true. Um, yes, yeah, indeed. So I don't know. It's, um, but for you, for you personally, in a sense, compared to, as you yourself said, the tension resides within you and, and mm, with yeah. uh, and Paul, because in a, in a media organization, as you say, normally there's the editorial stuff. Yeah. And then separately, there's the publisher and the commercial side of the operation, different people. And, and there's a tension between them, as always. I know yeah. I spoke to editors and newspapers and so on. But, but in your case, you're the same people. Yep. Right? There is no division. So the, the, whatever tension is happens in your own minds, right? Uh, in, in theory, yes. But that tension, it really, it so rarely arises. I mean, first of all, we always put editorial first. I always, I mean, the, the, the viewpoint is always that... Um, you can make back the money elsewhere, but you can never really make back the credibility. Um, so that's the first thing. And I don't know, I think because we are journalists, I, I just think we, we would, and it's only really happened, I think two or three times where someone's tried to exert commercial pressure on us to drop a story. Uh, and that's really, that probably includes my whole career, not just the Holmes report. Um, and in every situation, I just think the sheer satisfaction you get out of breaking the story regardless, it's just too good to turn down. Well, you are a bit of a rottweiler, aren't you? I mean, in, in a nice well, it's, you're a cultured, cultured rottweiler. Uh, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but I think you do have to make it clear that when that kind of pressure is being exerted, there's only going to be one outcome. Um, and that is that the that editorial reigns supreme. Um, because I do believe... Well, what, one thing I've... You, sorry, Arun, you sorry, carry on. Just to carry on. finish that point, but if, I do believe if you take a long-term yeah. view of the business, you can always make the money back elsewhere. Um, but if you allow your credibility to be dented, then I, I think it's, it's very, very hard to retrieve that kind of situation. Mm. Uh, what, one thing I've um, always said about you, Arun, is sparing your blushes um but I, I think it's an important thing to say um is that to me you are what i would call an old style journalist um and, and what do i mean by that i mean that you follow the old-fashioned virtues of you you get you get a 
you get a potential story, um, uh, whether it's pleasing for the people you talk about or it's not pleasing for them. Um, the latter often being saying, have you lost this account or are you about to lose this account, that kind of story. And what I like is that you check the story with different people. So you never just publish, at least to my knowledge, you don't just publish a story because one person said something. And you always give you know, the other side the opportunity to come back with a view. And you check the story of two or three or maybe more people um, in order for you to be as reasonably satisfied as you can be. You never know for absolutely sure, but as reasonably satisfied as you can be that the story you've got is, in essence, correct and fairly represented and that that kind of um you know you used to be i think the way journalists were trained right mm -hmm. <laughs> and um uh, to, to do that you know that was kind of a key part of the of the skill and the key at the core of the concept of journalistic integrity and it, it allowed the reader or the viewer to have some degree of confidence, um, notwithstanding the editorial line of the newspaper or publication, that that the news reporting was was fair and accurate as it could be. Mm. Now, as you know, um, and I, I think you've always done that, and I, I admire that. And uh, having said that, not and I don't want to mention any names. And you know, when you look around now, we're in this brave new world of content. Mm. And agencies like mine um, have kind of thrived, as you know, in, well, the last few years, not just this year, but thrived on the idea of creating engaging, what we call engaging content. Mm -hmm. And we would like to think um, that the content that we produce is, is similarly grounded in some idea of truth and uh, accuracy as well. We'd like to think that. Um, that's at least the standard we aspire to but and that's been great and as an agency and all other agencies have kind of made a lot of money on that mm. as a citizen now if i put my citizen hat on i sometimes worry that you know if if say we put a piece of content out so say, say it's a simple good old-fashioned news release let's say you know, forget forget the more fancy types of content that we do and video and web and applications on. but let's just say it's a good old-fashioned news release because they're still there just about mm -hmm. And you see it being printed verbatim, mm. right, by a whole load of different um, online publications. You know, the, the, the press release that's put out is reproduced faithfully. No one's attempted to interrogate it. No one's attempted to get another view from someone else. Mm. And it just appears. Yeah. And it's at one level that's, oh, great. You know, I've got a controlled message out there. As a citizen, I kind of worry about that. Do you, do you worry about that? Yeah, I mean, I see it up close, as, as you do as well. I think, I think we're all aware it happens. I think the curse of churnalism, to use the word I think was popularized mm. by Nick Davies, um, is real. And when and, Oh, in Flat, flat Earth. Is that Flat yeah, Earth? Yeah, the, the, the author of yes, flat, Earth yes. news, flat Earth News. And, you know, we're not immune to this. I, I wouldn't suggest that we are immune to this. I think there have probably been situations where in the rush to get a story out, we have um, perhaps used rather more of a press release than I would like. Um, it's, it's, some of it is down to economics. There's no question, shrinking newsrooms, um, this, this obsession with clicks, you know, the rise of digital media and the idea that page views and clicks equals, somehow equals dollars, um, means that people are in a hurry now to get out as much content as possible. And so the whole process of producing journalism 
has kind of broken down. Um, and, you know, really uh, many, uh, many titles, many digital media, I, I do see will we'll reprint a press release without questioning what's in it. And I, I, it is a big worry. And, you know, you, you said it was described as, you know, old style journalism, which I think means I'm old, which is fine. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> but, you know, I do think it's, it's actually just a reflection of the, of the fact that newsrooms, certainly the newsrooms I grew up working in where I was trained as a journalist and where Paul Holmes was trained as a journalist, um, were, were much better resourced. And you could put people on beats and on stories and you had sub editors and copy editors and fact checkers. And so you could make sure that um, whatever you were printing, because it was print back then, um, met your journalistic standards of proof. Uh, it's, it's just a lot more difficult these days um, because the, I think the twin pressures um, of a lack of resources uh, and this kind of hunger, unlimited digital inventory and hunger to drive as much content out as possible. So what we've tried to do at the Holmes Report, and like I said, we're not immune to this because you know, we all feel the pressure, but we've always tried to, to just take a less is more approach we don't have to print every story. We don't have to cover every story. We have a very big news in brief section where we often just condense some of these press releases down. And when we do write a story, we try to actually properly write the story and talk to different people and make sure that we are um, delivering more for our readers than just the press release. Because otherwise, I, I just don't see why anyone would bother reading what, what we have to say. Um, and of course, the other thing I should note is, you know, the best stories don't have press releases. Um, and that's always the kind of news I would prefer to, to go after, always the kind of news I'd prefer to break. Um, that, <laughs> sometimes at odds with, you know, with people in the industry, but that also takes time. And that is really the, the, the hardest thing when you're in a, a small team like we are, and like many newsrooms are, I think it's just being able to, invest a level of time to deliver journalism of, of a reasonable quality. Um, but yeah, it does worry me. I think, I think it worries lots of people that um, you can see a release just traveling across the world and being reprinted in so many outlets. Um, and the power now is, seems to be less um, focused on what the story is than on how well it's distributed. Um, and I think that is a big concern. So just another reason to be a grumpy old man then? <laughs> yeah, or woman, but yeah. Or woman, absolutely. Um, and I, I just before we move away from the Holmes Report onto kind of broader industry questions, but just, mm -hmm. just a couple more questions on this front, Arun, if you don't of course. mind. Um, one of them is talk about awards and the Sabres and Agency of the Year. Um, this region, that region, globally, markets and so mm. on. Um, and you, you have a, a great, you know, you've established a great kind of franchise, if you can put it that way. And, and I also think you deserve, uh, Paul and you deserve credit for, you know, taking um, awards into markets which didn't have any, where it's really raised the bar. And, you know, if you win an award, I don't know, in Africa, Eastern Europe or whatever, it's, you know, it's a big thing. and. Um, 
and it rightly gets people excited because of, you know it gets people talking about the quality of work and so on so i think there've been hugely beneficial aspects of of, of the awards that you run some people i don't say many um some people are sometimes a little cynical about mm -hmm. um on the basis they well they, they can say a number of things they can say you know especially when it comes to like agency of the years and listen we, we've been a huge beneficiary thank you in the past of, of being an agency of the, the year here there and everywhere um as you know and thank you very much and we're proud of that but some people say well uh they might say well when it comes to age of the year the homes report has to kind of share them round, you know so we'll give weather shamrock this one this year and oh we've got to keep edelman happy we'll give them one over there and, oh yeah we haven't rewarded you know person conan wolf so we'll give them one there some people say that All right and i'm mean, so what you say about that uh, others you know come back to this idea of the you know well I mean, you've sort of partly dealt with this, but you might want to address it in terms of awards. Well, it depends on who gives the sponsorship money. So, mm. as we know, a lot of events you have are yeah. sponsored by Weber or sponsored by Edelman or sponsored by Weber. And I know that that revenue presumably is important to your business model. Mm. And so there is, and, and, and you could say, well, it's sour grapes because you didn't win, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And anyone who doesn't win normally complains about that and won. But there is that kind of, I wouldn't say it's deep. There is, you sometimes hear that from otherwise intelligent people. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your response to those kind of comments? Well, first of all, I think they're really valid concerns. You know, and even if they do come from people who haven't won, and then you know, it's very easy for us to sit here and go, oh, that's just sour grapes. I, I, actually, I think they are really valid concerns. And so um, I, I think they have to be addressed, you know, no matter what, what kind of business you're in or or what kind of awards you're giving out. Um, how, to, how to put this? I mean, it's really difficult for us to make decisions based on sponsorship revenue um, because I think for as long as I've been, especially if we talk about agencies of the year specifically, um, for as long as I've been doing it, and that includes my time with the Homes Report and before that with Haymarket, and um campaign and i and i you know i think their agency of the of the year awards as well are um similarly above reproach um the the goal has always been to make a decision that you can defend editorially um and if you can't do that then you don't make that decision and when we make those decisions you know we are in you know you're surrounded by other journalists and i think the idea of allowing commercial considerations to cloud that would be would be very, really difficult first of all i mean then then there's more i suppose more kind of prosaic factors right so if you're talking about the big categories say large agency you mentioned network of the year global network of the year weber shandwick edelman burson kona wolf i think the last three winners i mean every agency in that category is a sponsor and is a, a sponsor of, of of some value to the homes report so it's it, it would be hard to, to pick one over another based on their sponsorship i think people who make these criticisms honestly i don't think they actually look at the decisions we're making in terms of agency of the year in any great detail because there are so many um agencies of the year that we've handed out 
that have you know zero commercial relationship with us um, in so many markets around the world and again that's not by design we just go through the um, submissions we go through our you know the, the, all the meetings we have with agencies around the world and we and, and we make the decisions it's um yeah it's just it would be i think i actually think it would be really hard to allow commercial considerations just because of the process we follow um and even if you look at for example you mentioned global network of the year weber edelman burson conan wolf i mean it's it's so weber's won it won it what three years in a row i think um at one point and then it was edelman and then burson conan wolf i mean if you're fleischman hillard or uh ketchum or hill and knowlton strategies i mean by now you'd be pumping money in you thought it was going to get you an award <laughs> yeah good point and i mean i don't know how we can i i think this could have... so the strategy the strategies failed well, it? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah i just I, I, the results i just think the results speak for themselves really i, I don't know um yeah i just don't know how we could make it any clearer it's um yeah no you, i think you've answered i think you've answered very yeah. very well on, 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 but i on but but having said that i'm You're, sure this criticism will persist i think it's it's honestly it's just a cost of of doing business um but i think by and large um people who know us well kind of appreciate that the agency of the year awards um are we may not get it right i'm not claiming that at all but i certainly when we, when we get it wrong it's definitely not for commercial reasons okay good point so f final question on just on home sport journalism and, and so on before we just have a little bit of time on the broader issues sure. um so you're a journalist mm. tell me uh, a sort of personal question if you don't mind um what are you kind of most proud of as a journalist and mm second question is what have you what have you been most embarrassed by ever or maybe you've never been embarrassed i can show you why i have but so i just wondered what are you most proud of and any any embarrassment um, story i think i'm i'm honestly i'm most proud of of just the team we've built here at the homes report and the progress we've made over the last eight years i think tim you know as well as anyone the situation when, when i came into the homes report um much smaller team really only you know two maybe three people in the business um and the progress we've made since then without any external funding to go to you know we're, we're 10 people now we have journalists in new york and london and san francisco and hong kong um and to, to build our global footprint and to have had a lot of fun doing it and and actually to kind of build this culture here it, it makes it makes me really proud, but I think it's 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 a huge team effort, and that I think has been amazing. You know, really, because I honestly didn't think we would get this far when I joined the company, if I'm being honest. Um, and yet, somehow we have, and um, it's it's as far as I'm concerned, it's still early days. I still think there's a lot more we can do, um, and there's a lot more we will do. Um, but that makes me proud. I mean, there's, 
you know, there's, there's, there's stories that, that we've broken and that I've broken along the way, but I think that's just part of the job, really. I don't, I rarely look back on those things and say, oh, I'm so, I'm so happy. I'm always worried about losing the next one. So, so um, yeah, that's what makes me, that's, yeah, that's what makes me most proud, but, but obviously, as you know, never get too proud. Um, what am I most embarrassed by? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I've made some, some, especially when I was a bit younger, I think some of my op-eds from, luckily not so much in my Holmes Report time, because I've become, as I've got older, I think I've, I've become a lot better at, at covering my bases when I write something um, and, and, and making things as more, more deliberately vague than perhaps they should be. Uh, but but maybe in my younger days, some of my op-eds, I think, were, were uh, I didn't quite get things right. And I suppose that's a little bit embarrassing. But again, I, I think it's par for the course um, for any journalist. I think it's one of those interview questions where you answer, you know, what's your, when they say, what's your biggest weakness? You say, I worry a little bit too much that I'm too perfect. <laughs> You know that, that I work too hard. I, I should say um, that I'm, I'm proud to say when I think I we were both in Hong Kong at mm. the time, um, and when you were still at Haymarket, and I had a I can't remember it was an email or a phone call from a certain Mr. Paul Holmes <laughs> um, asking about this Arun Suderman guy and should he hire you, should he should he bring you into the right. report? And, and of course, I told him go for it like a shot. Mm. What Paul doesn't know, uh, at least not until. Uh, not till now, because I guess I'm sharing it with, with him if he listens to these podcasts, is, is um, I then subsequently had chats with you about how to structure your contract. <laughs> yeah, and your, your advice was very welcome. But I always thought, I always assumed that Paul had asked you to, um, to, 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 to support his, uh, his, his attempt to hire me, because... Um, well, I, th I don't know. I think he will have asked a number yeah. of people, probably. I'm not the only person. No, no, no. I think um, and, and I think he, he, he but, he, you know, it's probably one of one of a number of people he, he just asked to talk about. It. And maybe, were, yeah, I think he was partly, partly just checking out. He'd already made his judgment. And I think he was just as we all do, you know, when we're getting someone just checking our judgments right from other yeah. people. But, yeah, maybe he was also asking me to sort of be, be charmingly persuasive to you. Well, well it sure worked. That. Made much difference, but, it works, uh. which is just as well, really. Um, but I mean, honestly, it's I was I say this all the time. I was I just think I was I was lucky. Um, I think all of us, all of the journalists in the Homes Report, are pretty lucky in that we can continue to be journalists, and we don't have to worry about some of the pressures that afflict other media companies. Um, and you know that is a a, a, a relatively good position to be in these days and we, we you know we do sort of to a certain extent we control our own destiny um and so that you know i i'm always so thankful to paul for, for for giving me that opportunity because um you know life as an industry journalist otherwise um if you look at the last decade has not been easy and I guess in, in Paul, you also have someone who's terrifically smart and, and well-read in this industry, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He, he really yeah. is. Era, I would describe him as erudite. He's, he's forgotten um, in, in, more in, about in, the industry than, than I guess most people yeah. will ever know. And probably... Yeah. Which reason, must be great, though. Is, you know. mm. Okay. So look, just a, a broad 
big broad brush question about the industry. So, you know, you and I have had discussions before. I've had I've heard you uh, have discussion with other people in the industry, and you've you've sometimes referred to the fact asked the question as to whether there's a kind of existential crisis. Mm -hmm. I think was the phrase in the PR industry. And I'm not saying you've necessarily espoused the fact that there is, but you certainly asked the question um, for people to respond to. And I remember giving a sort of garbled response to it on a previous um, call that mm. we had. So I just wanted to ask you, do you is it your sense, because you probably talk to more people than anyone, certainly more than I do across all firms, is, is it your sense that there is a, you know, to use that phrase, an existential crisis going on? Um, well, I try not to be too garbled, first of all. Um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, there's probably a measure of hyperbole there uh, because existential is a pretty strong word. Um, but it's the kind of word I use quite often just because um, it, I think it makes me sound smarter than I am. Uh, but I think the crisis, if you want to call it a crisis, or at least the challenge facing the PR industry, um, is, is, a, is a real threat. And that is that I think the practice of public relations has decoupled almost from the industry of public relations in that you don't need to be a PR person or a PR agency to practice public relations successfully. I see many ad agencies developing brilliant public relations campaigns. Um, and I think that's a really big threat for the PR industry because it means that other types of agencies, whether they're ad agencies or digital agencies or management consulting firms can go to clients and maybe clients with bigger budgets and can say to them, we can do all of your public relations for you. You don't need to hire this PR agency. Uh, and I think that is a big threat because, you know, I think everyone now knows where they need to be when it comes to developing great campaigns or great work or whatever you call it. And that is starting with that kind of, um, that notion that earned media is, 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 is the sort of central idea upon which you build everything. And what we've seen is every single type of agency, I think, has realized that and has, has made efforts to get to that space. And in that process, what we've also realized is that PR agencies, PR industry has no monopoly over great public relations ideas or great PR skills. They have a head start. I think they understand the process is better. I think their model is probably best for developing those ideas, but they have no God-given um, right or guarantee that um, they're the only ones that can do it. Uh, and I think that that is a really big threat. I suppose, yeah, um, for sure. Um, I suppose you could argue, well, well, the first thing is that the kind of barriers to entry mm -hmm into setting up a PR firm have always been yeah. pretty low. I mean, in, in, one, exactly. in one sense, you know, that's why you get new agencies sprouting up every mm -hmm. week, right? Because, you know, have a, have a, have a computer, phone, yep. you know, don't even need a desk, you can do it from home, right? Uh, uh, have, have those and a little bit of mouse and experience or maybe some contacts, you can sort of start doing PR in inverted commas. So that's kind of always been yeah. true. I suppose the, the broader point would be that, um, um, you know, our global CEO, Andy Polanski, often talks about everyone, you know, there's no swim lanes mm -hmm. anymore. Okay, so so it is certainly true that we're finding lots of other swimmers in what used to be our lane, mm -hmm. right? 
it's also true um, that we're swimming in a lot of other lanes that yep. we never could or would before. Yep. And, and that's right across the board. You know, to the extent that, you know, companies like ours, we're not the only one that are kind of playing in a little bit of the management consultancy space. We're, we're playing in a little bit of the advertising space, certainly on definitely on online paid media. Mm. Um, we're, you know, doing all sorts of weird, wonderful things that we weren't doing before. So it could be that there's no swim lanes, but the swimming pool's got a lot bigger for us. Would you kind of agree to that? Yes, I do agree to that. But um, I still think it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small number of firms that are actively competing beyond the public mm. relations swim lane, um, if I'm being completely honest. And I think it's not quite happening as quickly if you look at the whole industry, it's not quite happening as quickly as perhaps it should be. So yes, that's, that's clearly the opportunity, right? It goes both ways. Um, in the same way that an ad agency like Droga5 can develop great PR campaigns, as, as we've seen, you'd like to think that a PR agency can also start developing, if, if required, great advertising campaigns for some of its clients. Now, I just see less evidence of that. I'm sure it's happening. I struggle to see as much evidence of it as the converse. Um, yes, good point. And, and I, I simply, you know, beyond the kind of insight we have into our own firm and, and of course, our, uh, some insight into our larger competitors that may be mm. true um the i suppose the big one of the big obsessions as you probably know at the moment is with data right. uh, or data <laughs> as you prefer to say it. um and, uh, data and, and insights and yeah um and um you know we we along with um again two or three of our large competitors have been, have been investing very heavily in data and insights expertise um it's probably only just begun to scratch the surface on that because we can see the, the drive towards data as being relentless. I attended a meeting we had in New York last week mm. and someone put up a chart of all the kind of different data roles, um, different, you know, different data specialists and roles that we may need to recruit in the next 12 months. And I, I haven't even heard of mm. some of them, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> what are they? What is that one? What is it? You know? <laughs> And um, but nonetheless, and I, I believe you know these these are uh, people we're going whose skills we're going to have to get for all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons that, that will enable us to provide clients with better um, services and enable us to use that ugly word again, monetize what we're doing more effectively and so on. So there's no doubt at all. There's an obsession with data. Mm -hmm. If um, final question, maybe if you were, and this isn't awful thing to be asked by anyone but is to ask look into your crystal ball um because um, predictions are always useless as we know but there's lots of fun as well um so if you were to look i don't know let's let's give a time frame and say three years not rather than the distant future but what what what's your guess at the major changes we will see and and, and how the industry will look um so time frame again next Three, three years, years, maybe? Is yeah. that a sensible time frame? Or two to three, let's um, say. I, I mean, let's forget 10 years, because who knows? Um, but let's say two to three years. Yeah, I think... 
So for, it's it's really encouraging to hear, by the way, about the the the, the shift in skills so towards data, and I think broadly that will that is taking root across the industry. Um, mm. I think that the rise of technology um, is kind of impacting all industries, and I think public relations is no exception. And I think it would be a little bit foolish to assume that technology won't start to impact some of the functions in a public relations agency as well. So I think that that will also start to happen. Um, but Through things like what? Machine learning, absolutely. AI, all those sorts yeah, of things you're talking absolutely. about. Yeah, absolutely. Machine yeah. learning, AI, yeah. um, automation broadly. Um, but if you were really to ask me what the biggest trend I see affecting the PR industry over the next three years, unfortunately, I'd probably say it's consolidation, um, which has very little to do with skills and has everything to do with resourcing supply and demand. Um, and I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for here, but... Uh, I'm not really looking for any yeah. answer. I'm kind of just but interested I, in your perspective. And by consolidation, because because we'll see new entrants marching in further, or simply because within the existing pool of players. Yeah, or, I just or, well, I just think we have a, a market that's oversupplied by agencies. Um, many of them owned by publicly held groups, um, for whom there is extreme pressure to deliver shareholder value. Um, and so I think that process of consolidation will continue to play out. I think it's been the biggest trend we've seen this year and I can see easily that continuing for another couple of years. Um, but if you're asking me like, which, if you're asking which skills do I think are going to emerge, then yeah, certainly data. I think still the industry has work to do in terms of developing um, it's offering around various different types of content. Um, I, I, I mean, there are so many areas that I think the industry could get better. So take an example, behavioral science is, to me at least, seems like an obvious area where if the industry can better understand what drives decision-making, then it can develop better campaigns on behalf of its clients. Will we see a big change in the next two to three years in terms of behavioral science? I'd be really surprised because we've known, I mean, the industry's known about this for at least five years now, and I, I haven't seen any significant movement. Um, better mug up on the neuro-linguistic programming. Exactly. Which I have a book on somewhere, but I've never finished. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, areas like that, I think digital broadly, there's still a lot of, work to be done at many firms in terms of getting deeper into, into digital. Um, the ability to counsel higher levels in the organization. So stepping back just from channels, but looking at, at that kind of CEO counsel, I hear about a lot. You know, I, I think in many markets, as you know, I think PR agencies have, have for whatever reason, sometimes been relegated to a more tactical role. Um, and I think that is an area where the industry needs to to look at 
improving its offer. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a really hard question because I, I kind of see where the industry, I see areas where the industry should be going, but then I kind of also see the areas where the industry is being challenged and pressured. Um, and it's sort of having to deal with both of those things at the same time. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a time where agencies have been under more pressure than they are today. Um, and I think it's certainly exciting. It's, it's very exciting. It's, certainly, and, and, you know, it's challenging, absolutely. but it's exciting. You know, we're, we're certainly very yeah. excited by the opportunities. But yes, of course, there are challenges. Absolutely. And well. one of the things we found, and I'm sure you found this as well, given how well Weber Shandrick has done over the last decade, is that we found that when there is pressure, on the industry, if, you, if you're doing things well and if you have a good idea or whatever, you can succeed and you can flourish. Um, so there's real opportunities for smart agencies, no question. Um, but I think it's going to be quite hard for a lot of agencies. Well, on that <laughs> Christmas note, um, I think we're, we're done on time, okay. and I wanted to thank you for being my guest, even though actually I'm your guest. Um, the the the, rule, the reign of the Lord of Misrule <laughs> is over. Things are reverting to their normal state. Uh, but thank you very very much indeed for you know take, taking on some tough questions. Thanks, Tim. Though these were these were really uh, good questions. I, I I enjoyed it. It's always interesting for the roles to be reversed. I'm I far prefer asking the question. As I'm sure you can um, and yes, as always, thanks thanks to our listeners for for, for sitting through that one. Normal service. If they did. Normal <laughs> service will be resumed with our next podcast. Thank you all. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.